Let's open up our Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. And uh, Philippians, hasn't this been such a great book for us to go through as a church? And I think the best part of it is that we've been able to uh, journey through this season, gathering in homes, around tables, studying God's word together. Uh, just believe that God has done a unique work in our midst of building meaningful relationships in the Lord through uh, these at-the-table gatherings. And um, just to add one more, once we come back from, uh, from the season of home groups in July, uh, we are doing a summer series called Summer in the Psalms with meals beforehand. So plenty of more fellowship to continue in, in this church. So uh, and, and I just love that because that's the way the gospel is meant to be lived out. The gospel is meant to be lived out in relationship. And we are to have, first and foremost, a relationship with God. And if this helps to think of it in these terms, we want to have a vertical relationship. You know, our, our connection to the Lord. But then we're also to have relationships with one another. And, and if it helps to think of it in those terms of the horizontal relationships that you have in your life, both aspects are very important to having healthy relationships. Because listen to me, you, you know, your relationship with God may be lacking if you do not have fellowship with other people. And your relationship with other people may be lacking if you don't have fellowship with God. So both that aspects of the vertical and the horizontal are crucial if we want to have a life of joy. And, and isn't that what the book of Philippians has been all about, is how to have a life of joy. And so much of what we're going to study today has to do with having these meaningful relationships in the Lord. So Paul's going to give some instruction in our section today regarding the relationship that the Philippian church had with God and the relationships that they had with one another. And so the main point of what we're talking about today is how healthy relationships bring joy to our lives. You guys ready for this? All right, let's begin in Philippians chapter 3, starting in the middle of the chapter at verse 17. Today we're going to continue into chapter 4, and uh, we start at verse 17 by reading this. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So notice right off the bat that Paul calls these believers brothers. And it's the word that includes both the brothers and the sisters that are in Jesus Christ. Just as Ephesians chapter 1 tells us, that we have, through Christ, been adopted into God's family. And so if we've been adopted into God's family, then that makes God our father, Jesus our brother, and Romans 8 actually tells us that we have the Holy Spirit that dwells within us, telling us that it's so. And so if, if we uh, are in relationship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, it also means that we are God's family, and therefore we have relationship with one another. You know, to call a fellow believer in the church a brother or sister, it, you know, it's not some sort of inside lingo that the church picked up along the way to seem more friendly, like, hey, brother, or what's up, sister? You know, it's, it's, it's not this thing as, you know, even as I've recently heard some lingo in the church of, of some people calling each other a queen, 
you know, to be, to be a queen. And I'm looking in a particular direction for that. I'm just kidding. Uh, anyways, uh, to call a fellow believer a brother or sister is actually deeply rooted in the fact that we are a spiritual family. You know, when I came to know the Lord at 17 years old, one of the most profound things I realized as, as I came into the kingdom, as I came into the church, is look at this family I have. Look at this, this amazing family that God has created. And I love what the Apostle John says. He says, because God the Father has invited us into fellowship with him, and if we have fellowship with him, then we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed us of all sins. And so this really is true, that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And Peter does say in his letter that we're a royal priesthood, and so I guess queen works too. But um, in the church, I just I feel like I can't overemphasize it. You're like, man, he's only on the first word of our section. Yeah, because I can't, I feel like I can't emphasize enough the fact that the church is a family and that here you'll experience both fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters and children in the Lord. In fact, the apostle Paul was recognized as the spiritual father to the church in Philippi. He's the one that first brought the gospel to that city when he planted that church And we even know that Paul said about Timothy in chapter 2 that like a son with a father, Timothy served with Paul in the gospel. So these kinds of family relationships are meant to be a model for us in the church body. So in the church, every believer, so, so if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're in the church, every believer should ideally have three levels of family relationship. You should have a spiritual parent, a spiritual sibling, and a spiritual child. Let me put it like this. Ideally, you want people who are ahead of you, people that are at the same level as you, and people that are behind you. And these relationships are going to form over time as we grow in our discipleship to Jesus. And let me even put it one other way that might be helpful for us to think about. We each ought to have a relationship with a Paul, a Barnabas, and a Timothy. A Paul is someone that is ahead of you, someone who is more mature in the Lord than you. A Barnabas is someone at your same level, someone of equal maturity in the Lord. And all of us should have a Timothy, someone behind you, someone coming up under you, that you can help them to mature in the Lord. And and so if you have all levels of those relationships in the church, you're living out healthy relationships in the church. And look, these relationships don't correspond with age, per se, but with spiritual maturity. And you can find these relationships in your own immediate, you know, biological family as Parents are raising their children in the Lord and all that, but, but still, this is a family. This is an extension of what we do in our homes. And remember what we're looking for. We're looking for people of spiritual maturity that we can follow. And the spiritual mature are those who think this way, which is that to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection has become the absolute goal of living. 
The spiritually mature person is the one who has a forward-focused faith with their eyes on Jesus, with heaven as the ultimate prize in the finish line, moving in a forward progress toward that goal. Just as Paul expressed that that's what he was doing, forgetting what lies behind, pressing forward to what was ahead. And this is why Paul could say these words in verse 17, join in imitating me. Join in imitating me. The word join means that there were already people who imitated the life of Paul. And then if we look at that word imitate, what, what does that word actually mean? Well, it comes, the, the word mimic comes from this word imitate. So um, I have a one and a half year old son, Knox, and right now what he loves to do is mimic how we will pray. And he um, will fold his hands and he'll close his eyes and he kind of peeks in prayer. And obviously I peek in prayer too because I see him doing this. And <laughs> And he's, he's modeling, he's mimicking his, his siblings. And, you know, I'll even sit down at the table and just, I'm ready to start my meal. And he's just like, dad, <laughs> he's a year and a half. He doesn't actually talk. He just is like, goes like this. I was like, oh yeah, I got to pray before I eat. So, um, but right, there's this relationship where it's right and it's good to look at what people are doing in the church and say, look at the way that that person follows Jesus. I want to follow Jesus like that. I know for me, when I first got saved, I looked at men in my church who I'm like, man, that, that man loves God. And I want to model, I want to pattern my life after his. And it's a good thing. It's a biblical thing to do. And so Paul imitated Jesus in such a way that if you were to imitate Paul, you would be imitating Jesus. That's why Paul could say in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And that was a safe thing for Paul to say because Paul knew that his life was truly being lived for Jesus. And if people modeled their life after his, they too would be living for Jesus. But look, Paul was not the only example of Christ-likeness. And Paul's not saying this because he's on some big ego trip you know, he's saying this because this is to be done in local churches. So he says in the rest of verse 17, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul says that there are others in the church who can serve for you as godly examples. These people had followed Paul's example, not only his, but we look at men like Timothy and Epaphroditus, who were mentioned in chapter 2 as godly examples for us to follow. These were people of godliness, not just in their words, but actually in their actions. They lived out the things that they believed. These were people you could look to, to imitate. And that idea of keep your eyes or get your eyes on these people is, comes from a word that is where we get the word microscope or the idea to scope something out. It means to intently look, look carefully, look closely at a person's life and then copy their living, pattern your life after theirs. So this is what it looks like. In your church, you look for people who are living in a manner that is worthy of the gospel 
and you follow their pattern of life. You see, being part of a healthy church is when you can look around and actually find people that are walking in Christ-likeness. People that are walking by the Spirit and not by the flesh. You want to be in a church where there's discipleship happening on all levels, to have people to look up to, to have people to walk with, and to people, have people who could look to you. All three stages are important to have in a healthy church. But a healthy church is only made up of so many spiritually healthy individuals who each have their own healthy relationships with God. So I have a question that I asked myself, and it's a challenging question. I'm going to ask you. It's, it's very sobering to ask yourself this question, so get ready. The question is, is if, if everyone in this church were to imitate your life, how healthy would this church be? If everyone followed Jesus the way you're following Jesus right now, what would the state of this church be? It's a sobering question. It's a question that's meant to prompt us and encourage to have a growing faith. Now, I've heard this said before, and I've even said it myself, and there, there can be a caution definitely within the church where we look to people rather than looking to God, and that there's a danger in that. But, but listen, I've heard people say, again, I've said it myself, well, don't look at me, look at Jesus. No, 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 I'm not perfect. Don't, don't look at me, look at Jesus. And, and it's true, no one is perfect. No one here is perfect not even the Apostle Paul. So if when I ask that question, if everyone were to follow Jesus like you follow Jesus, you're like, well, yes, this would be quite a fantastic church if everyone followed <laughs> Jesus the way that I am following Christ. You know, everybody over here, the guy in the middle, check me out, you know? It, it's, it's, you might have a little pride if, if that's that. But again, it's, it's nuanced. Paul's not prideful in saying that because in humility, he said, no, I have a forward-focused life. My eyes are on Jesus. I'm following Christ. There's a race that's set before me. The finish line is heaven. I'm going in that direction, and anyone who follows me is also going in that direction. And Paul, as he was on that journey of faith, he, he was able to say, you know, not that I have attained perfection, but I press on toward the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I'm not perfect yet, Paul says. And no one in the church is able to say that. I, I'm not saying this that everyone's going to be perfect. I'm just saying this is if we all have a forward-focused faith and we're all following one another as we're following the Lord, we're going to have a healthy church. And this is what Paul is calling out for. Now, God has called us by his grace, and we stand in his grace. And the righteousness that we've received is the righteousness that comes through faith. But the righteousness that has come through faith by believing in Jesus, that is a righteousness that is meant to be lived out. There's a righteousness that, that is positional, but it's also meant to be practiced. We're to live out holiness to God. You know, God, who has called us to himself, said to you, be holy as I am holy. Paul could say, imitate me because he was walking in holiness. He was a man set apart for Christ, a man who devoted himself to actually live like Jesus. That's, that's discipleship, isn't it? That's the call that you've been called to, to live like Jesus. So did Jesus not say, 
pick up your cross daily and follow me. And this is the call that we've been called to. It's a great cost. We lay down our lives daily to look more and more like Jesus. And we're being sanctified along the way. But Jesus said, you know, many are called, but few are chosen. Because it's one thing to hear the call. It's one thing to respond to the call. And to respond to the call means that you realize that small is the gate. Narrow is the road that leads to life. Only a few find it. And the large is the gate, and wide is the road that leads to destruction, and many will go by it. And Jesus said that if he's saying this, he's saying few people will actually be my disciples because few people will actually count the cost of what it means to follow Jesus. So then the question is, well, then what about the many? Well, Paul talks about the many here in verse 18. He says, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you with tears Walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. You know, there are a lot of bad examples for us to follow in this world. And this is what Paul is saying. There are many that you could look to who don't live for Jesus an abundance of examples for you to follow. And it's actually rather uh, much easier to follow those examples rather than to follow Christ. So in Paul's day, there were many who did not have faith, living faith, just as it is in our day. And look, this brought deep and terrible sadness to the Apostle Paul. I mean, look at what he says he says, I've often told you and now tell you with tears that there are those who walk as enemies of the cross. You know, it, it ought to bring tears to our eyes when we think about those who are lost without Christ. Paul is telling the Philippians, these people who do not imitate Jesus walk as enemies of the cross. And what does that mean to walk as an enemy of the cross? Do you, you know, do you look at one of these crosses here on the sides and you look and it's like, I don't like that symbol. No, that's not what he's saying. What Paul is saying to be an enemy of the cross is to be in opposition to what the cross represents. And what does the cross represent but that God has sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to die a death that he did not deserve so that we could live a life that we did not deserve. That we could come to God and have our debt of sin settled because Jesus paid it in full when he laid down his life on the cross. And so it is at the cross that my Savior died for my sins. And by his resurrection, God has given me the gift of new life. And so here's the thing. To be an enemy of the cross is this. Let me just say it very simply, clearly, please listen to this. To be an enemy of the cross is believing that something other than the cross can save you. Whether that's because you are adding to the cross you're saying, Jesus died on a cross for my sins and my works. Or, or the cross is one of many ways to get to God. It's just one pathway to, to get to God. Or, or it's to take away from the cross and say, you know, 
it didn't really cover all of my sin, whatever it is. It's to not believe in the cross to save you, that that's the only thing to save you, then that is to be an enemy of the cross. You see, Jesus saves people by his death on the cross and by his resurrection from the dead. Is that your gospel? Is your gospel that Jesus died on a cross and was buried and on the third day he rose again? Full stop. Or have you added something to it? Or are you diminishing that work? Or are you taking away from that work? See, to believe any other way for salvation is to be an enemy of the cross. And Paul is going to give now a few defining marks of people who oppose this message. And he, again, he says this with sadness. He says this with tears in his eyes. He says their end is destruction. And that word destruction means to be emptied of all worth, to be, to be rendered useless. It is not to be annihilated. It's not to destruct it and then you cease to exist. No, it is to still exist for all of eternity, but then to have nothing of goodness and nothing of value in that eternal existence. And that is what hell will be. It will be a place that is emptied of all worth, all use, and all value. Why? Why is hell the way that hell is described in the scriptures? Hell is hell because God is not there. God is the source of all that is good, all that is right, all that is just, all that is pure, all that is light. And if God's not there, then it's darkness and it's tormenting and it's gnashing of teeth and it's, it's endless torments because God's not there. And that is the end of those who chose in this life to not have God. They'll spend eternity without God. And then it says their God is their belly. And the belly speaks of our appetites, right? Maybe you're feeling hungry for lunch after church today, right? But, but nothing wrong with having a meal, but when we become people where life becomes all about self-pleasure and self-gratification, where we would live rather for the things that please God, we live for the things that are pleasing self. And to live for the lust of the flesh. These people would be those where, you know, their bread is not God nor his word, but they feed themselves with sinful pleasures because they're their own God. Their God is their belly. And then it says they glory in their shame. Now, shame is the result of sin. I hope you know that. And if any sense today, you feel a sense of shame, it's not of God. Because shame was dealt with at the cross, but those who glory in their shame, rather than coming to Jesus and confessing their sin and allowing them to, him to forgive them of all unrighteousness, they tried to cover their shame like Adam and Eve did in the garden where after sinning, they sowed for themselves fig leaves to try to cover their nakedness and shame. But how'd that work out? How's it working out as you try to cover your own shame? You need God to cover your own shame. And that's when God provided a sacrifice and covered the shame and the nakedness of Adam and Eve. God's the only one who can cover your shame. We try to cover our shame ourselves. And when we're not good at covering our shames, you know what we do? We actually glory in our shame. It comes to a point where it's like you begin to celebrate your sin. 
You, you become prideful in your shame and in your sin. All the while, it's killing you inside, but it's like, oh, it's good. I'm, I'm going to glory in my shame. And then it says they have their mind set on earthly things. And, and the mind is the place of knowledge and all wisdom. And, and those who refuse God's way of salvation, and yes, the cross is foolishness. But to those who, to those who are perishing, it's foolishness. But to those who have believed it, it's life. And we're unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the mind that is opposed to the cross Their mind is set on earthly things, and everything that is on the earth will surely pass away. So, can I just say it as simple as I can? Don't be an enemy of the cross. Be reconciled to God. God has provided the way of salvation, the only way of salvation, and it's through Jesus Christ. By what he did on the cross, by dying for your sin and shame and being raised from the dead so that you can have eternal life and hope and joy. Don't be an enemy of the cross. And today I'm going to give anyone here an opportunity to come to Jesus, to come to the cross and receive salvation. And so if that's you and you want to do that today, I'll give you an opportunity this morning. But there's still more. Look at verse 20 to 21. It says... But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. What a contrast is that? Doesn't that sound so much better than the fate of the enemies of the cross? If you're a child of God, then you can say this. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are God's beloved. Our end is eternal life. Our God is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Our glory is that our shame was removed at the cross, and we are now unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it's the power of God unto salvation for anyone who believes. Our minds are set on heavenly things. Our citizenship is is in heaven. Are you able to include your name in that word, our? Do you belong to these truths or do you still live as an enemy of the cross? So children of God, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, we must realize something that is very true and profound here. We must realize that we have dual citizenship. In the same way that a person might enjoy citizens of two countries, Say they're citizens of the United States of America while being simultaneous citizens of Germany. And for many people who have dual citizenship, they might find a greater identification with one place over the other. And this is to be true for Christians. We have a citizenship in heaven while still being citizens here of this earth. But this earth, we are to be exiles in it. We're to be pilgrims, sojourners, just passing through with heaven as our homeland. Heaven is far better. It is our dwelling place that is permanent and here is only temporary. And the Philippians had a unique experience of this because they lived in Philippi. And Philippi 
was located in the region of Macedonia, which meant that Philippi was not in Rome. And yet Philippi was a Roman colony. It was a province of Rome. Therefore, many of the Philippians understood this idea of having a citizenship of Rome. And yet they didn't live in Rome. And so the same is true for us. We have a citizenship in heaven, and yet we don't live in heaven. Not yet, at least. And so heaven, Christians, heaven is our homeland. Heaven is our government. Heaven is where our Lord is and where we receive all of our direction into where we have all of our allegiance. And I think Paul's using an interesting play on words here because in Rome there was the Caesar who was the highest ruler of Rome and Caesar happened to also take upon himself those two titles, Savior and Lord. Many early Christians were actually persecuted and even killed, martyred, because they confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior, and they would refuse to confess Caesar as such. And so this is true for us today. We may be citizens here of this earth, and we're to be good citizens, and yet our allegiance is to a better place. Heaven is my true home. And from it, I'm awaiting a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the mature believer is going to think this way, right? Now, it's been a little bit since we've come across a scripture about the second coming of Jesus. And so I just want to remind you again, in case it's sort of faded off of the forefront of your heart and mind, Jesus is coming again. We don't know when, but he said, be ready. I'm coming quickly. And this idea of awaiting a savior from heaven is, the word awaiting is to be looking outstretched. It's to be on your tippy toes. Just can come at any moment. And the second coming of Jesus Christ is probably one of the most purifying truths of the scripture. It makes us ready. It makes us wanting to live each day in light of his coming which means that we're going to be ambassadors of reconciliation. We're going to want to see more people coming to Christ. Paul was so thankful that Jesus didn't come back before he had become a Christian because you know what? Had Jesus come before Paul's conversion, he would have been an enemy of the cross because he was killing Christians. But Jesus was patiently waiting to come again so that more and more people could come to Christ. The reason Jesus hasn't come back yet is because he is patiently waiting for those to come. But there's going to come a day when the last person that Jesus is going to save gets saved and he's coming back. Have you been saved? Are the people that in your life that you'd love to see get saved, are they saved? And are you with great boldness or with tears in your eyes praying for their salvation? And this is the call that we're being called into. And doesn't this put all things into proper focus? I mean, I love coming to, to church and I love coming to the word of God because we're in the truths of scripture and we read things like verse 21. He will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. If it was really hard to get out of bed to go to church today, this is a promise for you. 
you know, like all those back pains and everything, gone by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This lowly body that we have, this temporary tent that is wasting away will be made to be like his glorious body. We will put on a permanent dwelling, permanent resurrected bodies that will last forever. And how is he going to do this? It says here, by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Do you know what that power is? It's the power of the resurrection. The same resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead is the resurrection power that dwells in you now and the resurrection power that will transform your lowly body to be like his glorious body. It's happening and it's coming. So Jesus is coming. He's coming soon. And he has all power and authority where everything will be subject to himself. So the question is, are you subject to him now? Because if everything's going to be subject to him, if every tongue will confess and every knee will bow that Jesus is Lord, both those in the earth and under the earth and all, everything, all things will be subject. All means all. The question is, are you included in the all now? Because if it doesn't happen before his coming, the truth is those who are going to be saved are those who are imitating Jesus now. And those who will be judged are those who are enemies of the cross now. And so, again, I just want to say, you came to church today, you've got, you're getting these truths. I hope they're anchoring in your heart and they're going to influence the way you are living out your week. And, and, and weeks and months and years of your life are going to be influenced by the truth of God's word. But, but just to kind of think about how this all plays out in, in our daily life, We've got this high view, this heavenly mindset, and then, and then Paul in chapter 4 is going to bring it right back down to the relationships that exist among us. And we want to be that church that's just firing off on all cylinders with discipleship. We want to be that church that is outstretched, waiting for the coming of Christ. And yet many of us, our experience of the church has been one of hurt and of fighting and of bad examples, and, and all of the such. And Paul understands that. Paul's going to write about that here. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, whom I love and I long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Paul knew what was against the church because we're not in heaven yet, because we're still living in these bodies of flesh. And he's saying, I love you guys. And Paul could say that and really mean it. I love you. I long for you. I can't wait to be with you, both now and in eternity. Let's stand firm in the Lord together. But what Paul's going to bring up here in verse 2 is that there was an issue going on in the church of Philippi that was distracting from these wonderful promises of our eternal destiny. Look at what he says in verse 2. I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together, with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. You know, when our relationship with the Lord is healthy, so will our relationships with other people. 
mostly. You know, in the church at Philippi, there was some disagreement that came about, some disputes. There were two women in the church. Their names here are given, Yodia and Syntyche. And Paul entreats both of them, meaning he urgently, strong, uh, urgently encourages each one individually. And he says, agree in the Lord. Apparently, there was some disagreement about something that happened. We don't really know why. The church in Philippi knew. Um, and how would that have been when, you know, the letter gets brought back to Philippi and the church of Philippi is there and it's reading through the letter of Paul and then it's like, and Yodia and Syntyche and those women just in their seats like, oh, you know, that would be the worst. But these women had some disagreements. And Paul's asking for this true companion, this, this yoke fellow is the word, to come alongside and help these women through their issues. So Yodia was exhorted, Syntyche was exhorted, someone mediated the situation to help, which means that, you know, if there's ever a fight in a church, it's usually you don't take sides, you just tell each one, get along. And that's what Paul's doing here. He comes to this church, he's saying, Yodias and Tyche, and he describes who these women are. He's saying, they labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers. These were two spiritually mature women in the church who served in the gospel together with Paul, and they weren't getting along. Does that ever happen in church? They were gospel servants. They both loved the Lord. They both loved their church. They were mature leaders, both in positions of leadership. But something had gotten between their relationship, and now they were not of the same mind, and they needed help to get back to that place. This is how seriously Paul took little divisions and disputes in the church. He took them very seriously because it can tear down the unity of the spirit. And take notice that Paul says, here, this is the great leveler. He says, whose names are in the book of life. You know, when you realize that your name is in the book of life, and so is that brother that you've been in a disagreement with, and your sisters whom you've been fighting with, their name is in the book of life as well. You know, when you think about that, it makes our silly little squabbles seem so ridiculous. Doesn't it? This eternal perspective of the book of life makes everything seem so much smaller. Our, our present disagreements are, are nothing in comparison to the fact that our names are in the book of life. Even the disciples, when they had success in ministry, Jesus had sent them out to go uh, do the things that he did to follow his pattern, to, to follow his example, and they went out and they cast out demons. And they come back to Jesus and say, we did what you did. We cast out demons and demons are subject to your name. And he's like, do not rejoice in this, but rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. So even in your great successes and even in your great failures, the great leveler is, oh, but our names are in the book of life. You know, the book of life is a record that God will open when he comes to judge. And if your name is not found written in the book of life, you will be cast into the lake of fire. The end is destruction for you. 
But if your name is found written in the book of life, you will enter God's eternal kingdom. It's a record book that has names. We also like to have record books. We like to keep records of wrongs that other people commit against us. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, love keeps no record of wrong. See, the record of the book of life should dispel any record of wrong that you have against a brother or sister in Christ Jesus. And so I love that Paul is the one giving this instruction. Do you know why? Because Paul had been through the same thing. Do you remember when Paul and Barnabas went their separate ways in that it said they had a sharp disagreement over whether to bring along John Mark on the missionary journey, and they went two different ways. We know that they eventually reconciled through the letters of Paul that they had a relationship, but we need this, church. We need to focus on what unites us rather than on what divides us. And the great uniter of the, is the gospel, that Jesus Christ has died on a cross for our sins and that he's risen from the dead and all who believe in him, their names are found in the book of life. So friends, let's do this. And let's end with verses four and five that says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. You know, just that perspective that Jesus can come today helps us understand that today we need to have a healthy relationship with God. Today we need to have a healthy relationship with one another. Perhaps you need to reconcile in your marriage. Perhaps you need to reconcile with a parent or with a child of yours or a brother or a sister, someone in your family or someone in the church family. We are to be ambassadors of reconciliation. We are to be continually being of the same mind in the Lord. Because when we are, we can take that command that says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. You know, when our relationships are healthy, it makes it so much easier and genuine to rejoice. But even when things are troubling, even when things are trying, we're still commanded to rejoice. Paul says, let your reasonableness be known to all. That, that word reasonableness just speaks about having a level head, being gentle, not being so offended, being kind-hearted, merciful toward one another. Let that be known to all. And so if you need that true companion, which I like to think is the Holy Spirit is that true companion, to come alongside and help you do that. He wants to help you do, do that today. But we're also a church family that is here to help one another. Help one another grow in relationship with God and help each other grow in relationship with one another. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this time. And Lord, I ask as we enter into a time of worship, Lord, we would respond by your spirit to the things that we have heard. And Lord, you said in your word that if you are coming to offer at the altar your gifts and there you realize that you have an issue with a brother or a sister, that you would first go and be reconciled and win your brother, win your sister over. And then you can both come and bring your 
offering to the altar. And I just pray as we enter into this time of worship, Lord, that none of us would have um, a offended mind at one another. And even if there's known people in this room that there needs to be reconciliation, I pray by your spirit you help us to do that. Pray as a church we help each other to do that. Let us continue to grow in Christ-likeness where you, Jesus, were the most forgiving one there's ever been. Thank you for your grace and love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.